Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hello, Olivia. Hi, Micah. So great to see your smiling face, my friend. I'm so excited to record this podcast. It's one of the last things on my to-do list till I leave the country tomorrow. So I know. Hey, world, Olivia's taking a vacation. That means it's okay for the rest of us. Yeah, it's always okay for the rest of you guys. But this is the first time <laughs> I'm leaving the country in five years, so I'm very excited. That's so wild. It's going to be yeah. great. I'm extremely excited for you guys. It's going to be so fun. Thanks. Yeah, I'll be over in Portugal. So if you have any recs, send them my way. I'll be there for food. 10 days. Eat food. Try the food. So no, much I don't know. I actually guys. never I never went to Portugal. What? You went all over Europe and you skipped Portugal. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. it was a little out of the way from the other spots that I was going in Europe. And it was warm and like fall time. I mean, started yeah. in the summer, I guess, but like went into fall. And so like I feel like Portugal is like a good summertime springtime warm experience there add it to your list for next time well we'll see you you tell us when you get back yeah love a whole nerd alert just about that oh my gosh <laughs> yes what are we talking about today for our nerd alert this was i'm pretty sure 100 percent your idea we are going to talk about web 3 and nfts yeah you found some really educational articles on it, some good opinions that have some good references, some like serious essays about it, which I think is useful because I think a lot of us don't understand what the heck any of it means or why it matters, if it matters, if it's all hype. And we're going to get into some discussions, at least of our opinions, having read some of this material and you're going to give us some edumacation in from the edumacation. Um, what the heck it is? Yes, I actually think we have to credit Steph. I think Steph came up with this idea because I also want to preface this by saying I am so nervous to even crypto explain anything. <laughs> um, well, but it came up from you working on some branding projects that were related to that. Mm-hmm. Sorry for taking the credit away, Steph. If Steph had suggested it, it was probably because. You were doing it and we were confused. Yeah, there were like a couple of days I was trying to just immerse myself in it to understand what Web3 is, what's all the lingo about. I, I'll admit I had pretty much little to no interest in Web3 <laughs> before I was kind of forced to really look at it. And now, now I'm pretty curious and I'm definitely going to be following along to how the Web3 world transforms. And this is also like a part one of two, of three, maybe. We're hoping to get someone that is much more involved in the Web3 space, in the Web3 and typographic space, to have a discussion with us so we can start opening more listeners to what the possibilities are in the typographic and design world. Because I I do think there is a future where Web3 and typography just join forces. So I think we should all be informed about how that's going to happen, when that's going to happen, and what that means for everyone. Do you have all of the answers? I have zero answers. I have <laughs> lots of thoughts. I've got yeah. zero answers. But uh, in the meantime, we're going to go ahead and talk about some stuff that we are comfy with that is something we know about. And those are the links for the week. I'm going to have a short little roundup. But the first one is UI and UX micro tips from Mark Andrew, volume 14. And Micah, I think this is such a Micah article. It's super digestible, very quick tips, all about making the web a more usable and beautiful place. How do you feel about these tips in here? I agree wholeheartedly. I love the visuals. I feel like you and Steph were saying that when we reference articles like this, it is often by Mark Andrew. Is that true? Yeah. We actually him before. Mm-hmm. So he does a really good job. You know, I love a before and an after to visualize a tip. And uh, so there's just a handful of those in here. And Mm -hmm. I got to say, he starts with the titles, I think, are interesting enough that you actually read what the heck he means, but not clear enough that you know from the get-go what he means. Mm -hmm. The first one, 
is go soft, not hard with your grid spacing. And I was like, what does that mean? And I think he's basically saying rather than drawing a grid on a page and having everything line up, just have a rule system for how far apart stuff should be. Yeah. And have relative consistent spacing. And I've always loved that tip because I started out in design school, same as a lot of us, where they teach you like a paper grid to draw it on paper and paper doesn't change and the web changes constantly in a bajillion different ways that it's hard to remember all of the possibilities. And so for all web related things, you end up having to have some relative self-referential system where yes. it's like, because I did this X amount, I'm going to do that X amount, not because it's X amount to the left or the right. Absolutely. I do the same exact thing even when I'm not designing for the web. I'm all about the relative grid. It's not going to be like six pixels gutter, five rows wide. Like I think being so stuck to a given grid that is automated for you has always hindered me and was always something I found so confusing in design school until I just let go of that and be like, okay, here's my one unit of length and this unit I'm going to divide or double and that's how I'm going to organize my page or my package or my layout. So agree wholeheartedly with that tip. One tip that I thought was genius that I've not seen before in our little UI UX roundups was towards the end, and it says, keep those search fields wide. Fit in the full search query. So it talks about how sometimes search bars have shorter length, even though you might be typing in several words. So when a user starts typing in, let's say they have the example Millennium Falcon drive shaft, and (laughs) all of a sudden you only see Millennium Falcon and everything else disappears, That's really not a great user experience. So (laughs) they show what happens if you actually widen the search bar, if you know people are going to be searching for white things. Like imagine if the Google search bar was like one and a half inches wide. You'd be pretty annoyed. I have often said that coding and design are not separate. And this Mm. is the kind of thing that I see a designer who can code knowing this tip inherently, whereas Mm. a designer who cannot code He's thinking about the overall aesthetics and not, I'm clicking in here, what am I going to type in here? And those tiny details are things that you get from designing in action. Not even so much that I'm saying that every designer needs to learn to code, but I think designing outside of the browser where you're not playing with it and using it and messing with how it works, you miss out on tiny details like this. I'm not qualified to be a web designer, but if someone did ask me to design a website, I would probably make this mistake, I admit. This is not something I was thinking about, but I love that. I now know it. Yeah. So a lot of great tips, a handful, and they're great. So read it. Our next link is from It's Nice That, and it is titled Hussein Alazat on children's books from the 60s to 90s and why they demonstrate the highest peak of Arabic bookmaking history. So mm-hmm. Hussein is a Jordanian designer, and they have their own extensive library of books that they've found through going to bookshops or flea markets and warehouses. He has come to the opinion after all this digging that there is this treasure trove of vintage, for all intents and purposes, books that use Arabic typography And I could describe it here, but it's definitely something that's really worth taking a look at. I mean, he even says that they really kind of are elevated to this realm that doesn't even feel like this functional design piece, but more almost like an art piece of its own. And they're everything from banned literature to atlases to comics to children's books. There's a whole bunch of stuff in there. And I just say this is really fun to just browse and see what books are that you totally never have seen before in your life. Mm-hmm. Also, it's all Arabic lettering and typography, which we're just like, oh, I know we all love to just look at, even though none of us can read an Arabic language. I think it's really interesting how expressive this goes. I haven't really seen Arabic typography in an expressive way from the 60s to the 90s. There are some crazy bubble letters going on. There's Arabic Mm -hmm. lettering like in perspective in a psychedelic illustration. It's so cool and expressive. And it really reminds me, I remember from Type Weekend, a lot of these designers that were looking at Arabic typography developed 
in the past like 20 years by people that are doing digital typography but aren't native to the language. And all of these things where they were trying to make Arabic typography look like geometric and kind of make it look monoline and very modern. And a lot of typographers that don't aren't familiar with Arabic typography were just applying Swiss design standards to Arabic typography for things like the Android phone and all, for all these sorts of things. And I feel like this is just a good reminder of how fluid and organic Arabic typography is and how you can actually stretch it to this more expressive route and have it still feel so natural. And obviously I can't read this, but I just can just devour all these images all day. (laughs) That is well put. And it is really neat to see it because that has been most of my context too, is like UI and reading related Arabic typography, just from like the stuff that I have been involved in and to see the equivalent of a Beatles poster, but it's actually like a magazine from 1974 mm-hmm. is wild. It's cool. It's neat. I like it. Good inspiration. Yeah. I just could look at these all day. Next article we got is it's actually, this feels like a pretty different article from the bunch. It feels like really outlier from what we usually talk about, but I'm excited to see it in here. Good choice stuff. And it's an article titled Merch Design with Jackson Green. This is actually like I think a little bit of interview style article, also informative on what it's like to be a merch designer, like what it's like to design band t-shirts and merch for brands. Keep in mind, Jackson Green, the designer here, is designing for a lot of music brands. He's a permanent designer at Mad Decent Records and is based in the West Coast. So combine those two things and you're going to see some avant-garde, kind of more weird, (laughs) unconventional merch design to say the least. But I think it's actually interesting. They make it less about the graphics, really, in this article. And they talk more about how he critically thinks about t-shirt design. He even says, if you're designing a t-shirt, it's great to know how a gilded tee sits on a person. He was saying, mm-hmm. like, even the way that the fabric can form around a person is different with every brand of t-shirt. And where you place your graphics is going to move a t-shirt from normal and static to something that feels a little bit more dynamic, which I don't know. I've had to like design t-shirts since I was in high school, because if you're the designer of the friend group, you have to design shit all the fucking time. I don't do it as much anymore, but I think about how I've never considered those aspects and those fine-tuned details. Really? Yeah, I guess I think about scale. I think about where it's going to sit on my body. I wouldn't think about what something would look like on a sleeve or like how it would hang and how specific t-shirts fit differently. I don't know. What do you think? How, oh, do, how do you well, this is, I mean, this? This was an inconspicuous advice article where I didn't expect it to be advice on his perspective of how to do this well. And the headings of this article are unfortunately crap of learn your craft, find your own style, totally useless headings. However, the actual advice that he says is interesting. And that, I don't know, what you're describing right now, I also thought was one of the most interesting perspectives that he included in the article. It's like, sure, one or two people remember old league shirts. And that's basically the only t-shirt design that I've ever done. But it was like obsessive about it because I did a handful of test prints of not thinking about it, got them printed, put them on. And I was like, oh, these look horrible just because I have a normalish body shape for my size and weight and gender and whatnot. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I need to move this off of my nipples. And like, I need to, (laughs) this would look so much better on the sleeve or on the back. You can't have it take up the full space that it can print with the design that I was working with because it just curved in a weird way when I looked at it. Yeah. I mean, all of that, it seems like similar wisdom to what Jackson's trying to impart. I mean, I only did it once and that's why I never wanted to do it again. It was a lot of work. Yeah, I mean, it's he says he has like a collection of hundreds of t-shirts in an archive, so you can just like look at how things look. And I thought it was really interesting. He talks about how he suggests people that do merch design to understand the printing techniques, to go ahead and screen print something yourself so you understand what the possibilities and limitations are. Like very practical advice for someone that designs really experimental shit. <laughs> I know, I know. I was like, like the I'm actual so designs are so weird. And- I know. 
That makes me love it so much more. But I mean, I feel like this is a direct translation to you. What you just mentioned about the search field and how like designers mm. who also know how to code, there's certain things that they'll understand because they understand the context. It's a similar thing. Like you got to try it out and revise and edit. That's how you actually become good at it. It's not just by I doing mean, It's the same for literally anything that you are designing. Design isn't just how it looks, but how it works. Yeah. Like it's true for fonts. You can't just make one that looks cool. You got to type it out and see how it reads. You got to print it out Proof. on paper and see how it prints. Posters. How many times in art school did you make a poster that on the screen you thought looked really cool and then you print it out and you're like, oh, that's not readable or that's too large to read? Weird little things like that. Oh, my God. My text was always too large. I'm always like, what right? was I thinking? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's such a good point. You got to like get into how the thing works to be able to know how to design anything. Yeah. Agreed. Very wise. And on that note. Occasionally I remember that I know stuff. You know lots of stuff. Oh, shush. (laughs) All right, Micah. I feel like that was such a sweet and short link chat, but we got a lot to chat about and go over. Mm, Indeed. While I crypto bro the hell out of this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) oh boy i also want to give like a little precursor to this i don't know if i explained it i am neither super pro web3 or actually still more skeptic of web3 than pro but i'm more pro than i ever have been is that fair does that make sense from doing this research yeah i'd say i'm actually fairly neutral leaning towards skeptic but fairly neutral is skeptic anti or a skeptic different from anti? I think they're a little bit different. I'd say I'm a optimistic, neutral person with slight skepticism. <laughs> we should put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> so yeah, I understand there's people that really are against NFTs. I understand there are people that are really struggling to get other people to support them. And I hear everyone here, and I'm going to be continuously interested in how things move. With that, let's start. Our NFT crypto web three deep dive. <laughs> it, it might also be useful to preface that while this might touch on typography, I think it's a little bit more in the design realm than specifically yeah. fonts. Yeah, it's definitely like general content creators, which a lot of this stuff is going to apply to type designers and many designers. Okay, I'm basically going to break this all down into a few different sections. We're going to start by a brief history lesson of the web to understand (laughs) what people are manifesting Web3 to be and how that relates to the past. And then we're going to talk... (laughs) What, manifesting? Yeah, that just feels on point. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. Continue. No, it's okay. Our next big idea is what centralized versus decentralized means, because that's like very core Uh, to the Web3 world. How monetization will work on Web3 compared to how we monetize things currently on the web in our Web2 state. And then what's the deal with NFTs? And then we're going to finish with why people are super like not on board for this and why I think why some people think it's destined to fail ultimately and why it's such a negative such a bad thing cuz yeah it's a controversial situation history lesson guys so at the beginning of the internet there was web 1 which was from approximately 1990 this was when Al Gore invented it right yeah is that our true verified news is that not a joke that you remember Am I too old? Did I just age myself? Oh, shoot. No, tell Forget me your it. joke. Continue. Okay. It's not even a joke. It's literally just like at one point in a weird conference when I think when Al Gore was vice president, he meant to say he had helped pioneer getting the internet into a more commercial space, but he accidentally just said he invented the internet. Oh, my God. Well, we need to all find that clip now. Appreciate the enlightenment. <laughs> I'm trying not to detract. Continue. It's okay. Web one. 1990s, early, early 2000s, the web was an open and decentralized place. We're going to go over what decentralized means. It was community governed, and a lot of the money that was being made was going to the users and the builders of the web. So this is like all about the openness. And when we say open, I'm talking a lot about open protocols, which I didn't know anything about before this research. I don't want to interrupt too much, but I feel like you might be merging web one and web two in this context. 
Oh, I have Web 2 up next, but you're a tech expert here. No, I also don't want to ruin your research. Like, you did such a good job researching. Go and correct me afterwards if you have things yeah, to correct I'm me, I'm sorry. Please. Go ahead. So when we think about open protocols, email is open protocol, which means that Gmail can speak to Hotmail, which can speak to Yahoo, which can speak to AOL and so on. It's like these different platforms are able to communicate and no one entity owns email. Similarly, Wikipedia is a decentralized community governed space. It is really uh, the people of the community that are contributing to it. There's no one person that gets to say, this is what's happening. This is not what's happening. People are contributing to it from all over. Then there's Web2. It's about 2005 to 2020. And kind of now, like we're kind of still in Web2. We're really in Web3 yet. And that's like centralized services run by corporations. Apple, Amazon, Facebook, we're all playing by their rules. Like if you post an image to Instagram, you have to post things of a certain pixel size. And then whoever sees it is based on Instagram's algorithm. And we can't do anything about that. That's what that sort of means. And then Web3, where we are starting to start seeing now and potentially into the future is meant to combine the best of both worlds. This is how people are selling Web3, where it's a decentralized community govern place like Web1, but it has advanced functionality of Web2. Like it comes with all the technological advances we've made. And then monetarily speaking, they hope that Web3 will have a shift in balance of power towards creators. This is what they aspire to be. This is one of the most powerful narratives. And ultimately, it's a blockchain-based ecosystem, and it's operated by its users. And again, wants to be a fairer, better internet. This is how people are selling the bag of goods that is Web3. We're going to break down some of those terms so we can better digest how people are selling Web3. And so centralized versus decentralized, again, centralized platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Apple, what they've been trying to do is recruit people like you and me, users and content creators, people that tweet, people that post to Instagram, also developers and businesses to use their platform. You know, businesses can advertise on there. And again, we're all playing by the rules and ultimately the rules are always changing. Like Instagram is not one thing one day and it's not going to be that in five years. We've all seen things morph and change. Creators are beholden to all of these changes and developers in this case, like let's say you're developing an app and you want to get on the app store, you are beholden to the app store's rules. And similarly on Facebook, businesses can only advertise within certain parameters on Facebook. So everyone participating in these centralized platforms are beholden to the rules. And people that are very for Web3 are saying this is stifling innovation and it's making the internet less interesting and less dynamic. And again, because of these rules. And so if you want to think about it in terms that might be familiar with you, 90% of streaming royalties on Spotify go to the top 1.4% of musicians. The top 100 bop makers are getting 90% of the royalties on Spotify. So like you can see why this does not seem like a good position for independent musicians to be in. Even if they have their biggest fans, maybe they have a hundred big fans and they stream their music nonstop for a week. That's not going to make a big dent in what they bring home. They may bring home $10 from that. So again, this is happening with every content creator. It's like people that are on Twitch. It's like the top 1% gets to take home money. People on podcasting, top 1%. Unfortunately, we are not in that top 1%, but we can dream. We can dream. So (laughs) can I just throw in two cents? Mm -hmm. Hearing you talk about this, I think made me just realize something interesting that I haven't said before. Web 1 is often described as publishing. The key theme there is like they invented a bunch of systems and anybody could publish basically anything they want on the web. And the problem was you couldn't find it because it was everywhere and there was nowhere to find it. Web 2, which is often described the theme as like platforms, which you're describing, right? Like centralization comes down to there was a really interesting article linked in one of the articles that you're going to talk about called aggregation theory and it was that these platforms emerged like google as one of the most successful first examples google's entire value was making it easy to find those things that were sprinkled Mm. around the internet that you had no way to find before and the rise of these platforms and the power of these platforms 
has grown because of the necessity of aggregating. Like it's impossible to find stuff if you don't know how to search mm-hmm. random IP addresses and just type it in and happen upon the cool stuff. And so these platforms, the convenience of the aggregation of the content made the internet explode and why platforms are such a big deal and also enabled the centralization of monetization, which gave the aggregator all of the power to charge whatever they want and only give whatever they want to whoever created the content. Yeah. And Web3 then is like an art movement where every art movement is rebelling against the art movement that happened last. Mm -hmm. Web3 is trying to say, we don't like that these central authorities of anything, it could be a minimal authority, like the league is a centralized platform because Mm -hmm. we post on our website what we want to post. Mm-hmm. or Facebook or Instagram or the other you know examples, those people are saying we don't like the monetization power that you have from all of this aggregation, and so we want to take that back and decentralize it, right? Mm-hmm. This is now jumping ahead. We can forget this if you want, but I don't know how Web3 will work without Web2. If everything's decentralized, you can't find anything. <laughs> I think that's a very good point, a very sharp Question. I mean, your logic makes sense. A lot of the Web3 argument is how bad Web2 is, et cetera, et cetera. But you're right. There is initial uses for these things that have made our lives incredibly easier. Yeah. Okay. So I I had to share that because if I didn't say it, I'd forget it. So No, I'm glad you said it. We'll keep it in mind. Hopefully that also added some clarity to like these definitions that we're talking about too. Yeah. I feel like we got two-sided things. I have like the more, I got this from the textbook. Yours like, this is what we all know. Okay. How things get monetized on the internet. So like I said, if such a small portion of content creators are making big bank, it means that there are people that think there are a lot of more content creators that should be making more money. And there's a lot of creators that are getting bypassed from the money to be made because a certain select few that are going viral on certain platforms are making all the money. Like that's pretty much how to describe it. So how do things get monetized? Payments weren't built into the internet's infrastructure. The internet was not born with like a blockchain existing is what that means. And that wasn't necessarily built to facilitate the flow of money. But we're also at a place where everything is getting monetized. And also because of the way the internet was built in that way, it actually leads us to understanding why so much of the internet is monetized via advertising. That really kind of clicked in my mind. Like instead of users paying for access to Twitter currently, Facebook, Instagram, etc. We ourselves are monetized frictionlessly. Like we don't need to put in a credit card info to visit these sites, but instead we're monetized indirectly. So we're monetized frictionlessly and indirectly. Sorry if I said that weird. We're not paying with money. We're paying with our attention. We go to Facebook. Now every other post is an advertisement. That's our worth to this capitalistic internet ecosystem. So this business model for advertising just shaped like so many of the platforms we used. And because of that, the creators themselves are compelled to seek the broadest possible audience to create content that attracts advertisers. If we go viral, then maybe, you know, Squarespace will say, hey, we're attracted to the League podcast because they are viral. It's like this infinite loop system. It's like creators are trying to get advertisers. Advertisers can then utilize that. And that's how the creators get the money. It's like all the advertising in this very normal as we know it. Obviously, there's different systems like Patreon and all that sort of stuff. But we're talking about kind of how we know the internet. And so, you know, we're really incentivizing viral attention grabbing content and therefore disincentivizing niche in-depth content, which maybe doesn't speak to a broad audience that an advertiser could really get behind. And so again, Web3 hopes to change the balance. So how do things get monetized in Web3? The three points that made the most sense to me, how things get monetized, you know, people will make all sorts of points, but they introduce digital scarcity. And by doing that, they restore pricing power to the creators And then they are allowing people to support creators and have that support be an active investment, not just altruism. 
not just like, oh, I want to help an artist out. It's like, oh, I want to invest in this artist and I will get returns. They're also introducing new economic models that will spread wealth across the creator landscape. This is like what they call the great redistribution of power. So then we kind of start going into some of the buzzwords. You know, we have our blockchain, which is a digitally decentralized public ledger, as they call it, that exists across a network. It's basically a spreadsheet that everyone can see and have access to and has a record of what people own with tokens. Tokens are like the currency of Web3. So we have fungible and non-fungible. Fungible tokens being like Bitcoin, Ethereum, cryptocurrencies we've heard of, non-fungible being NFTs, which, you know, again, are like art, photos, code, anything that you can think of as a collector's item. What's confusing is that most people call NFT, like they'll be like, oh, that image is an NFT. But an NFT is like really just a unit of data that is stored on the blockchain. If you buy an NFT of a JPEG, other people can also copy that JPEG and redistribute it. That's the most confusing part of this all to me. Yeah, I agree with this because the first point in this very well-written article that you just mentioned and referenced is the introduction of digital scarcity. And I just don't buy that. It's hard to buy. I mean, some of what this article is referencing is like being a collector and like buying something directly from the creator is different than referencing somebody bought like a song directly from the creator that was an NFT where there is now this record of the fact that this person bought it directly from them. And so they felt some kind of ownership over it. And I suppose you could, this is maybe just me being not knowledgeable about the technology here, but is it that an NFT as you're minting it, quote unquote, or creating it and saying this is now non-fungible, like a non-transferable item, do you get to say there's only... 10 spots for people to own it as you're coding it. And so that's where that digital scarcity comes from. Yeah, I have to think it's in the smart contracts, which is like basically your terms that you set for your NFT. It's saying this amount of people can have access to it. But yes, again, it's weird because the media itself is really not the thing that's being scarce. It's like the ability to own it and then make money from it which is the scarcity. We'll get to this and all the reasons why we should all be skeptical of this shit. But yes, you are totally spot on about your being like, well, why? So again, NFT is like a deed or title of ownership or a name in an auction catalog being like, this person now owns this piece. It's a little bit actually less about the art, which I find interesting. But then it again leads to this argument that, so imagine you're a a creator and maybe you're a musical artist. And I will iterate, Spotify really is not great for independent artists. Spotify pays artists 0.004 of a cent per stream. So you can imagine that takes a lot of quantity to add up something significant. But let's say you're an artist, you put out an NFT a song via an NFT, and let's say you had a 1,000 fans pay $100 for that. You had a 1,000 people that loved you, loved your music, wanted to support you. They paid $100 for your, that content. That's $100,000 on an NFT. I mean, that is where I'm con- – that's where I'm but like – why? Why are they paying $100? Because it's the way that they know they're directly supporting an artist without having to go through a platform, without a platform taking a cut. How is this different than when Radiohead released an album on their website that you bought from them instead of buying it in a record store? It's not that different. That's where I struggle. Yeah, it's totally fair. And it could be different because if it's on the blockchain, maybe it means that there's some other dollar incentive. Then the community itself wants to raise the price of the NFT and NFTs prices get raised when communities rally behind them. Again, I don't know enough to go in depth about that. But yes, your fans get to pay you money because they get support, but there is financial incentive for your fans too. Whereas when you buy an album from Radiohead's website, you get the album. There's not necessarily future financial incentives from that purchase. This is what you're about to get into is the delegated financial incentives of being like an investment rather than a purchase. Yes. So 
Again, I can't speak too much this, but I recently revisited James Edmondson and Eric Hu's conversation about how this could apply to fonts and type design. And Eric Hu had this really interesting argument that let's say right now there's future fonts where you can buy a font in progress and receive future iterations of that font. And it is the closest thing we have to investing in a type designer and a font's future. But let's say this was on the blockchain. It was like the blockchain version of future fonts. And you could put up money for this font and you could invest in it. And then when the font is made and the font starts getting sold, you also get a small portion of what the font makes. So you're invested in like the NFT. Again, not sure if that would be an NFT license or what, but you're invested in the future of the thing. You're invested in the future of the creator. And you are also not just investing in it just because it's a good thing to do. You're investing in it because you have incentives to receive back things from it. So I'm not sure that that specifically is or is not related to NFTs. I think that is straight up platforms on top of blockchains or particular Mm -hmm. blockchains that people have invented where it's looking back at the history of who has contributed because that information is known and automatically sending some chunk of money to everybody's. Because I guess that's an important piece to understand about the technology is it's not your name that's on the ledger. It is the address where you can send and receive money for you specifically. They call it like a wallet address, Mm -hmm. right? And it's like this absurd, crazy number letter pair. And it's basically like a URL for your wallet. Yes. And so it's anonymous in that way. I think in almost all blockchains, I don't know that for sure. Interesting. My name isn't necessarily attached to that wallet, but my wallet address is in the history of of interactions with a blockchain. It doesn't have to be buying a digitally scarce NFT. It could be just any blockchain. And so by that information of my wallet's address being baked in, you can program automatically with Mm -hmm. code, obviously, to look at all those addresses and send some chunk of money. Yeah, that's a good build because I always forget that like you don't have to have everything at once when we're talking about Web3. Like there doesn't necessarily have to be NFTs when we're talking about blockchain or smart contracts. Like these are all buzz terms and they're all in this ecosystem. I mistakenly use NFT when I'm not supposed to. Please correct me. Um, I think it's really interesting when we're talking about fonts again, again, referencing this Eric Hu conversation. He mentioned that we could start connecting smart contracts So thinking about the relationship of the designer and the type designer, potentially, if you're a designer and you create a poster that uses this typeface and people buy this poster, it's possible that you could connect a smart contract where the designer of the poster gets money and the designer of the type on the poster also gets money or someone that designs the type will give money to someone that makes the poster and puts their type on the map, like makes their new font more popular because it's complicated, it's interesting, it's confusing, and right now it's all very theoretical. And that kind of leads me to all the cons and skepticism. (laughs) So I'll just start by saying this is all terrible for the environment. This is all objectively awful for the environment. We are just (laughs) doing a total disservice to the environment by having the blockchain. And in fact, one of the articles you pointed me to reminded me that often when you are purchasing an NFT, there's essentially a digital tax that is like an environmental tax. Yes. Like this will cost X amount on the environment like, this will murder the environment this much. And so we're going to charge you this amount extra to make up for it. Yes. It's crazy. No one talks about that. I think they sometimes call it a gas fee, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah. 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 Wild. Crazy. So there's entry fees. They say this world is accessible and open to all, but let's start by there's a fucking entry fee if you're trying to mint an NFT. Like, we're not going to forget about that. And yeah, connected to the environment, a single transaction on the Ethereum blockchain is equivalent to the power consumption of an average U.S. household over 7.86 days. 
So like you using your electricity for one week, if you're an average household, is equal to one transaction on the Ethereum blockchain. And I think a lot of people have heard these statistics, but I think to run Bitcoin, it takes the same amount of energy as it does to run the electricity in Argentina, which has 45 million people. Oh my gosh. It's really terrible. And I think it's important that people are showing how terrible it is because it is ultimately leading to more eco-conscious organizations that are fighting for more energy savvy blockchain or fighting for blockchains to change their standards or fighting for them to change their code so they don't use such an absurd amount of energy. So I think that it's recognized and there are some blockchains that are trying to adjust, but I also think it's fair to be skeptical. If there's a blockchain controlled by the super crypto rich, are they really caring about the environment? There's no way every blockchain is going to all of a sudden be like, kumbaya, yeah, we care about the environment. We know the systems that are built to make this economic tech world go round. It's never really been something that's been built into the system. So that I'm a little skeptical, but also optimistic, but skeptical. I'm not even entirely sure that how possible that is, because one of the building blocks of cryptocurrency, at least, is computers have to solve increasingly difficult computational math problems. I don't know what they are. And that's where, like, the scarcity of the economics of a coin comes in. It's like less and less coins are being created because the math problems are getting harder and harder, which take more energy to solve, more computing power. And so if you make the problems easier to solve, doesn't that just inflate the entire economics of it? And then the coins are not valuable anymore. Yeah. I mean, they'd have to create a whole new system of computing is what people are arguing for right now is to dismantle. Oh, just that. Just that. Exactly. That's going to take probably years to develop like and actually become in use. Um, and alien technology. Yeah, agreed. So that's the toughest pill to swallow, I think, in the why we need to be skeptical of this, because it just feels a little bit like the same people that are cheering on Elon Musk for going to space and just taking space vacations are the same people that are like, it's the future. Who cares about this earth that's dying in front of our eyes? Okay. Beyond that... I love that you mentioned that when you buy an NFT, it is on the record, but the record is like a URL. So the record that you own something is a link. And that link often lives on the website of a startup, of a Web3 startup. Startups often fail. And do we know decades from now, will there be a way to verify that artwork or NFT on the blockchain If your link that exists is with a company that ceases to exist. Well, I am not a huge expert in this, but my understanding is that like a lot of the technology here is open source. And a lot of the point is that decentralized, meaning everybody who has access to that technology, that blockchain can read it with the code that is written. And so it's not so much that they're holding on to the ledger. Everybody is holding on to the ledger. It's duplicated across everyone's computer. And that's part of the security of it, which is why blockchain is a technology separate from money or NFTs or art or anything like the idea of a blockchain is that everybody is holding on to the data. So you can't fake anything. Okay. If, I have a version of it that looks different than yours. You just have to go to the next person and be like, yours looks like mine, right? That person's lying. But what if your URL that verifies you own an artwork literally goes to a 404? Well, the words would be like, I make a wallet and that has this URL and I buy something with the wallet and then I delete the wallet. I think some wallets cannot be deleted. There is such a thing as like a hardware wallet. It's not owned by anybody other than who is holding the device. Interesting. Which is some crazy stuff. Okay. There are some kind of mix of what we're talking about where Coinbase is like a platform where you can have a wallet via Coinbase and they have built a whole platform around their version of accessing that wallet But I don't think it's so much that they own the wallet or the technology to access the wallet 
They're just adding the convenience of the interface of interacting with it. Mm, this is very informative. I mean, I think your question is still a pretty valid question. Like, in 20 years, will we all still be able to access this stuff? Who knows? I don't know. Yeah. But that's when we're talking about decentralization. That's what everybody was initially talking about. And then it just, like, turned into a buzzword. But it's the fact that every person who is participating in a particular blockchain, whether it's, like, Bitcoin or Ethereum or some other obscure one, Mm -hmm. everybody has a duplicate of the data. And so you can't fake it and you can't lose it. Interesting. Like if your hard drive dies, you connect with a new hard drive, you connect back into it and you get a copy of all of the data that you lost. And so that's like blockchain as a technology is interesting well beyond economics and art and stuff because it's a potential to never lose data because everybody's contributing to keeping a backup. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's not all of House of Cards, necessarily. <laughs> I No, I don't think so. I don't think so. But, I mean, that doesn't mean that people haven't, like, played games with that. There have yeah. been startups that had an initial coin offering or something, and then they wrote some weird sketchy code into their smart contract where you could only buy it and not sell it, and nobody paid attention, and suddenly, like, the owners made billions of dollars and everybody else lost money from it. That is still possible. It's still humans who are not always honorable. Well, that's a perfect segue into another aspect of what sucks about Web3. So the people participating in Web3 aren't this beautifully inclusive, diverse, accessible audience as Web3 claims they are attracting Let's be real. Web3 is like, we're going to get everyone across the world of all these socioeconomic people to participate in this creator's economy. That is what they're selling. At the moment, that is not who's participating in Web3 at all. Basically, for the past decade, the blockchain is just another place for a rich person to rest their assets. Instead of putting their assets in a house or a boat, there are plenty of super fucking rich people that put their assets on the blockchain because they know that the assets are going to appreciate in value. Like, let's be real, who's actually participating in this right now. Also, the blockchain, as of now, at present, has approximately no uses for a typical consumer. There is absolutely no reason for an ordinary person to choose a blockchain-based technology over a traditional monetary counterpart. You mean if you're going to the store to buy a coffee or something? Yeah. Or even in the past year where blockchain has been growing and getting popularity, I've never been like, oh, maybe this thing that I'm about to put money towards would be better if something exists on the blockchain. It doesn't exist. That's a thing. There's nothing that is existing that is really incentivizing normal people to use this blockchain, quite honestly. And also, quite honestly, it's super inaccessible. Micah, you and I went to the font.community site yesterday. I was like, let's see what's happening over here. And all the call to actions were the most random words I've ever seen, like pancake swap. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Really? Wait, for I reference, we didn't really bring it up, but font.community is the URL of a company, some startup, I guess. We don't know them, but seemingly having something to do with the blockchain and fonts. This came up a couple years ago, and I remember seeing it and being like, oh, what is this? And I didn't ever get any answers. <laughs> You're right, like the buttons in the top right that are like highlighted call to actions. There's launch app, which doesn't work, and that's just they're not keeping up with their website or whatever. But then there's like pancake swap, uniswap, spooky swap. And we were like, what does that mean? And like one of the top headlines on the page is dollar font equals NFT plus DeFi plus DAO. And you're like, oh, cool, got it. Yeah. What? So inaccessible to someone that just did like five hours of research on web three i still have no idea what they're even talking about on that so everything's living in this theoretical world where potentially web three could cater towards this amazing inclusive community that could change the world and even if they did a fraction a significant fraction of that i'd probably be a little bit more satisfied than i am right now with the state (laughs) of web three so the potential is really there, and I think there are really interesting people in this space that are trying to push for it to be something that could live up to this potential that is being sold to creators. 
but I just haven't seen any really great uses of Web3 that has convinced me to get on board. But I'm interested now, but not convinced. (laughs) Well put. If anybody listening who is like really excited about this episode and knows about stuff that we are getting wrong or missing or like don't know about, I'm sure we'd be very interested to hear, you know, send us an email or a message or something and teach us some stuff in a nice way. Be nice, you know. But yeah. I think it would be really interesting to learn some of the some of the because this whole thing is kind of still on the outer ring of normal. That's the perfect way to put it. Not to be offending anybody. Right? Yeah, no, like, it is. It is. It's like <laughs> <laughs> it's the perfect way to describe it. It'd be interesting to learn if if you happen to know anything more than what we've talked about, or like know some work in progress thing, or yeah. like some some concept that we're missing. Feel free to nicely teach us about it, and we'll we'll try to share that back with everybody. But hopefully, at least some of this. I think your research was excellent, Olivia. I think this was a hard topic to tackle, and <laughs> the articles that you referenced were also extremely well written and helped clarify a lot too. So. Yeah, those articles that both of us were just kind of mentioning throughout this talk, there's two main articles that were our favorites. They're linked in the newsletter this week. One is from Ion Design. They both have a really great creator perspective on the blockchain. So it's not just like finance bros talking about it. It's like why this isn't going to solve the democratizing design question. That's from Ion Design. And then their other one is just from a source that I have not used before, but it's Lee Jin and Katie Parrott wrote The Web3 Renaissance, A Golden Age for Content, and that's our For a Web3 World article. So you can can get both sides of it, which we thought was important. So yeah, Micah, you're super knowledgeable about Web3. I feel like I learned so much from you that you would have never spit out at me before. I didn't know that I knew things, but I guess I do. That's the running theme, huh? Yeah, we're excellent. Thank you for being so engaged in this crazy world that we are a part of. Great work, my friend. All right. All right. Bye. Do 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 do